And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. I'll get all the buttons right at some point, maybe. Welcome everyone, it is day two of the last month of the worst year in recorded human history. <laughs> December 2nd, 2020, and uh, we, are, we have survived so far. Welcome everyone, the live chat is open for those who are watching live. If you're in playback, you can always leave us a comment below, and if you want to send us feedback by email... That is live from the bunker at sci-fi4me.com. Of course, we're on all the social media, uh, such as it is, and several podcast players if you prefer to partake in uh, audio files. iHeartRadio, Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Double Twist, all of those where you can find this show. Uh, we do podcast for Super Chats. I've got the sign back over there. Anybody wants to donate. Uh, we also have a Subscribestar account, which I don't really talk too much about, but I probably should. We've also got a PayPal account. And if you're into buying stuff and swag, we've got a 10% discount negotiated over at SuperheroStuff.com. 10% off your order when you use the promo code sci-fi for me 10 and also if you've got material that you want to send us for review books comic books video well not really video games because we don't have any players we don't have any consoles except the Atari 2600 but if you've got material you want to send us to review, our mailing address, Sci-Fi for Me, 1503 Main Street, number 305, that's Grandview, Missouri, 64030, and we will get that in the queue for review. And uh, a programming note here real quick, just to let everybody know, a reminder, Saturday morning, Good Morning Multiverse is at a new time. We're moving it back to its original 10 a.m. Central for all the latest news. And we haven't had very much in the way of events, uh, up, event updates of late because of the holidays. Uh, Mindy is keeping an eye on announcements to see where things are uh, as far as cancellations and schedule changes. So we'll get caught up on that and get updated as things come in here because we really haven't had a whole lot in the way of convention news over the last few days. So we're not neglecting it. We're just not getting any of that. So speaking of events, there is a writer's workshop coming up in January. It starts January 4th, and the deadline to register is coming up very soon. So let's talk about it a little bit. The Odyssey Writing Workshop. And uh, joining us now, the director, the founder, Gene Cavellos, is here. Welcome. Thanks, Jason. So the let me let's let's get your geek cred out there for people to uh, to you know let's establish your bona fides here. Uh, Masters in fine arts and creative writing, a world fantasy award for editing, 
Uh, you've got a, a an anthology you edited, The Many Faces of Van Helsing, which was nominated for a Bram Stoker Award. Uh, you spent a, a, a good bit of time as a senior editor at Bantam Doubleday Dell. Now, this may be dating me a little bit, but I recall a time when Bantam and Doubleday and Dell were all different. <laughs> That's uh, that's been a while, I guess. Uh, so, uh, but you started in astrophysics and math, and then got into creative writing. Where? How did that? How did that start? Let's let's start there a little bit and see where your where your journey began. Well, my original career goal was to be an astronaut like Charlton Heston in The Planet of the Apes. I felt like that was the best role model ever. Uh, of course, he ended up destroying planet Earth, uh, spoiler alert, uh, but it, it did seem like it was an exciting adventure while it lasted. Um, so anyway, I wanted to uh, go work at NASA and be an astronaut. I loved reading science fiction. I loved imagining voyages uh, to boldly go where no man has gone before and all of that. Um, so that's what got me into astrophysics. And I did work at NASA for a time at the astronaut training division at the Johnson Space Center. Um, but I gradually realized that what I really loved was imagining the, the possibilities of what could occur in science fiction rather than working in the science. Right. So while the science was really interesting, where my heart was, was in the dreaming and storytelling. Um, and so that's when I moved from NASA and science to creative writing and got my master's and then moved into publishing to find out, you know, how this whole crazy industry works and um, worked my way up through the ranks to become a senior editor, <clears throat> editing science fiction, fantasy and horror, as well as some science and some um, other kinds of fiction and nonfiction. You've also taught astronomy at Michigan State University in Cornell. How, how has your background in all of this, has that inhibited the creative part? Because there are, there are writers who do their research, they want to get the science right, and they want to, you know, they want to make sure that they get everything, you know, correct as far as how a black hole works and what's the difference between a black hole and a wormhole and, you know, warp drive and faster than light, all these different things. Uh, do, did, does having a working knowledge of astrophysics and science help or hinder when you're trying to tell that fantastical, you know, the, the speculative fiction that maybe bends physics into a pretzel a little bit? Does your mind kind of sit there and go, no, you can't do that? Uh, for me, it's only helped. I can, I can imagine that, you know, for different people, depending on their mindset and the way that you approach science and science fiction, it might help or hurt. Um, but for me, uh, I love to look at possibilities and so when I'm writing about somebody, you know, using a wormhole to travel through space, uh, I like to think about the possibilities and how many things we just don't know, things that were previously thought to be impossible that we now take for granted every day. So I don't 
buy it when people say, you know, this is impossible. Uh, in fact, I wrote two science books talking about these things, the science of the X-Files and the science of Star Wars, where I went into some of these crazy possibilities and hey, in what in what circumstances could they be true? How could these possibly come to pass? Um, and uh, I interviewed lots and lots of scientists, experts in different fields for those books um, and found all sorts of fascinating research that, you know, that indicates that someday these things could be possible and actually some of these things we're already doing with our cell phones and other technology that star wars and star trek never even imagined have you um, have you seen the video of the guys who have actually made that plasma lightsaber have you yeah. seen it? <laughs> very cool we're very, not very that cool. far away so it, it it seems almost and i've had conversations with other authors about this uh, the the catch up the the fact that society the real world science is catching up to science fiction and speculative fiction at a pace where what do how how do we project into the future so far with the technology advances and whatnot and fiction when real life is is just I mean right nipping at the heels of what we come up with in in the fake stuff the fiction stuff oh by the way here's the real thing you know it's it's almost like you can't you can't project far enough fast enough is that a problem for for writing speculative fiction now it's a huge problem if you're writing near future science fiction uh the novel that i'm working on right now is set 20 years in the future and I'm a slow writer, so I've been working on it for several years, and I've had to update my tech in the book like four times because I would invent something <laughs> brilliantly, and then it would come out. And I was like, well, now it's not 20 years in the future. Now it's already here. I've got to invent the next level of thing. And so I invent the next level of thing, and then it would come out. So I do have a foil hat that I will wear <laughs> when I'm having, hoping to have some brilliant ideas so that the ideas will not get out anymore. Um, but I would, I would highly recommend writing farther into the future to avoid that problem. Um, but I do think that there's plenty of area to explore um, in the fictional future because as things develop, they don't develop the way that we foresaw. I mean, as much as... Um, People may have predicted, you know, satellites and the internet and communication like cell phones. Nobody predicted things like Facebook or Twitter, or at least not that I know of. And so the things that are, the way the technology is being utilized by people and the effect it's having on the society is very different than anything that was explored earlier in science fiction. So I think now that we know where we are here now, we can project into the future how the technology will be used in the future, and it'll be different than what we imagined 30 years ago. I, uh, so I think there's a lot of room for exploration. I have said on a number of occasions that as soon as uh, Google buys Facebook, Skynet will be born. Um, you mentioned you know, the different aspects of society and, and projecting forward that, that we weren't able to predict things like Facebook, social media, and that sort of thing. 
Uh, it would seem to me that uh, just looking over the landscape now, it would seem that social media is going to lead to our dystopian downfall almost, just just how people are behaving. Uh, is Is it... From a professional standpoint, because you have a number of people that come through your workshops at various different levels of experience as authors. You've got beginners, you've got seasoned veterans, people who are coming through there. Is there, is there ever a conversation about how you should conduct yourself on social media? Because you're essentially, yes, it's your account. Yes, it's your personal thing. Uh, whether it's Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or whatnot. But as professional authors, that's also your brand. And I'm wondering, because I haven't seen a whole lot on the on the educational side of things in terms of writer's workshops or anything like that, on how do you conduct yourself? How do you separate the brand of the author from the person who is the author? Can you make that separation? Should you make that separation? We absolutely do talk about this. Um, and at the Odyssey Summer Workshop, which is six weeks long uh, in New Hampshire every summer, the final week is dedicated to um, building your career, maintaining productivity, getting published, working with editors and agents, promoting your work, those sorts of things. Um, and I do... Um, stress the fact that writers need to think about what their purpose is uh, in being online in any space. If it's uh, on a social media site, if it's on their website, if it's on a blog, what is the purpose of doing that? If the purpose of doing that is to express yourself, then go ahead and express yourself. If the purpose is to try to get attention for your work and promote your work, then you need to present yourself in a professional way that's going to appeal to readers, people who you imagine would enjoy reading your work and offer them the kind of information and uh, insights and resources that they would be interested in. Um, if people like, like this, your work, then they would also like that. And so you wanna provide them with some of that so that they can also enjoy this, right? Um, and keeping, uh, you know, divisive opinions or opinions that have nothing to do with your work out of those spaces because those spaces are about promoting yourself as a writer and presenting yourself as your professional writer self, which is a subset of the whole you. It's not all of you. Um, people don't need to know that my cat walks with poopy paws on my face in the middle of the night uh, because she's elderly and ill and has difficulties in the litter box. I don't need to, to share that with people who I'm trying to get interested in reading my work. Right. Um, but in a personal space, I can share that. So you want to separate those spaces. I think most writers would find that helpful so that uh, they are attracting as many readers as possible. Now, the uh, information came out here not too long ago in the comic book space that there was, uh, there is maybe still uh, a, a whisper network, basically. You have a group of people that have got this secret Facebook group, and, you know, they're, you know, the back channels of talking to each other on who's who's the next target, who should be deplatformed or, or canceled, or, you know, cancel culture being the way it is. 
it, are you are you aware? And I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot, so you don't feel don't feel like you have to answer this. Uh, are you aware of that kind of conversation that happens on the literary side? Because you see what happens with the Hugos and the Sad Puppies and all of that blowing up. Are those conversations going on fairly regularly? We want to shut out X author because of their views. We, oh, I, You don't want to work with that person because they voted for candidate X or whatever. Is that is that commonplace? As, are you aware or is that the outlier? Uh, I honestly have no idea how common that is. Uh, it it kind of scares me if those conversations are going on. I'm, I'm not connected to them. I follow my own advice, so I don't talk about <laughs> things that are unrelated to my work as a writer or as a teacher at Odyssey. Um, and... and so I'm not connected to those sorts of, of networks. Uh, I would hope that, you know, that writers can get their work out there and people can decide what they enjoy reading and read what they enjoy and have the widest selection possible. Uh, I mean, the whole point of the internet was supposed to be to more equitably distribute access to each other uh, and to ideas and to materials so that people could choose what they're interested in and go there. And, um, you know, with the rise of the, the big tech companies, really the reverse is what's happening, right. um, which is sad to see. Um, but I hope that uh, there will still be places where, you know, where anyone can, you know, can connect with people um, and share whatever thoughts they want to share. Do you have any students coming through expressing concern because we've seen in the YA space certain authors get canceled and they have to cancel a book because they're not the right author to write that subject? Uh, or do you have any students that are expressing concern? I, I've got this idea for a book, but I don't know if I can write it because I fill in the blank X checkbox. I'm gonna get I'm gonna get targeted for harassment if I write this book. Is have you have you come across any of that from your students in your workshop? Uh, a little bit, I would say, uh, not a huge amount, but a few students have expressed those kind of concerns to me, and certainly they feel more assured when we talk about, uh, you know, different ways of handling different subjects and the fact that. Uh, you know, if you approach something uh, with a good um, a good heart and a desire to tell a true story and to do research and to uh, respect the material that you're using, that you should be able to write about pretty much anything. Um, I did have like way back, this has been going on a long time. Um, back when I was at Bantam Doubleday Dell, I remember my, maybe my first experience with this was an editor brought up a proposal from an author for a series of mystery novels um, with a, a black protagonist and the author was not black and there was a discussion about, well, can we do this? How can we promote this? Shouldn't the author be black in order to write a series of mystery novels with a black protagonist? 
uh, and the editor-in-chief's decision was to not buy these books, even though they were written really well. Um, so uh, that was sad for me. Uh, I feel like we all can, uh, with effort, we can all understand each other. And the purpose of a writer is to try to get into the heads of other people and try to uh, understand and express their experiences. And that one of the great joys of reading is to have that experience of being in the heads of other people. Um, so I would love to just see more of that. So let's get into the the Odyssey writing workshop here. How take take me through the formative years? Where where did the idea come from? Because I, we're you know we're familiar with Clarion West, Clarion East, those writers' workshops. Uh, had Travis Herman on here a couple of weeks ago, and he mentioned it. It was the first time I had heard about Odyssey. Uh, and then uh, earlier this week, we had Barbara Ashford on. Is how long have you been doing this? Is this your main project right now? This is your this is your bread and butter baby right now, right? Uh, yeah, basically, I've devoted the last twenty six years of my life to Odyssey. Uh, I'm glad you're finding out about it. Um, I think part of it is that I haven't written anything in a very long time. I, I self-published a novella here uh, several years ago, but in the writing space, I have not been that active in terms of actually creating my own stories for a very long time. So it's, that's, that's my excuse for missing it. <laughs> But yeah, how did how did uh, how did this get started? So um, when I moved from science into writing uh, and got my MFA, uh, I attended a a program, a master's program, uh, where pretty much none of the teachers knew much of anything about fantasy, science fiction, or horror. They all um, you know, wanted to help me write better. And I learned a lot about improving my writing style. Uh, but I did not learn many things that are really important for writing uh, a fantastic fiction. Uh, I didn't learn about world building. I didn't learn about how to incorporate exposition. There was little about plot because literary fiction does not put a lot of um, focus on plot. Um, and so many things that I wish I had learned in that program, I didn't. Um, and I thought to myself, gee, how great it would be if there was a program like this MFA program, but all of the teachers and all of the students loved fantasy, science fiction, and horror, respected those genres as you know equal to any other in their, their worthiness as art forms. Um, and could really focus in on the particular demands of writing in those genres. Um, when I then moved into publishing and became an editor, I found that I really, really loved working with writers, helping them to improve their work. You know, so I'd get in novel manuscript submissions. Um, I would see something that was very promising, but that needed work. And it would be very exciting for me to um, you know, to convince the company to buy that manuscript and then work with that writer to improve it. Um, so when I finally decided to leave publishing, uh, like eight years later, to focus on my own writing, I wanted to be able to continue working with writers. I wanted to, to be able to take that experience 
um, and build it into something that could be part of my future life. Um, and so that's why I created Odyssey, which I think of as sort of an MFA equivalent, I mean, jammed into a much shorter time period, but much more intensive, focused on those genres. And that allows me then to work really closely with writers for six weeks and beyond, because we honestly stay in touch long after that. Um, but that's, that's how it got started, was I really felt uh, there was a need for that sort of um, educational program that would help uh, writers of the fantastic and where you could, you know, work intensely with one person, me, for the six weeks to see how you're improving. You know, you make a submission basically each week and we talk about the strengths and weaknesses, but then you can, I meet privately with each student like three times at least over the six weeks and we discuss the progress, you know, so in your first few submissions, say your characters, your characters and your character arcs were weak. And so why don't you try doing X, Y, and Z? And then we meet again after a couple more submissions. Okay, your character arcs really improved, but your plot is not matching with your character arc. Um, why don't you try this and that and so on? So you have this continuous guidance. Um, and, uh, and then you have guest lecturers who come in each week to provide their own unique perspectives and approaches. So I felt a mix like that would be really helpful to writers. I am particularly taken with your your list of writing tips that are on here, and the very first one is punctuation. <laughs> let's, you let's, know, some things just kind of drive editors bonkers, oh and my. punctuation is a big one. You know, I and, and it's, it strikes me that in this day and age where we have all of this technology at our fingertips in order to make things better, we talk about social media, and the effect that that's had. But, you know, texting and shorthand and abbreviations and now suddenly, you know, grammar and spelling and punctuation and everything just kind of goes out the window. But, you know, the important thing is that the Masked Singer got a renewal, so we're going to get another season of that. I mean, I was like, give me a holodeck and learn how to spell. You know, it's, it's one of those things. But I think that's funny that punctuation is your very first one. <laughs> Because people don't know how to do that some. So. I didn't even know there were rules for punctuation. Like, I thought you just put commas in where you felt like it. I thought you put <laughs> dashes in where you felt like it. I, you know, and I got through all of college and the master's program without anybody telling me any different. And finally, when I started writing really seriously, you know, I started accumulating grammar handbooks, of which I have, I don't know, probably... 200 at least now um and noticed hey oh my gosh there's rules for when you use the comma <laughs> when right. you use a dash and all these other things and they really help readers to understand your sentences and the more you master the punctuation the more varied your sentences can be uh the longer they can be uh and the reader won't get lost because the reader subconsciously understands those rules and understands then how to connect the different parts of the sentence and how all these different parts add up to one beautiful idea now are you an advocate of the oxford comma <laughs> yes i am <laughs> all right okay so you got to make sure because you know 
these these things are you know them's fighting words as they say in some places. Uh, okay, so let's talk a little bit real quick about what is coming up in January because you have this uh, you have the online workshop that's happening starting on January fourth. So what what can people expect if they're a part of this? Because it's not just go sign up; it's you have to apply and get accepted, right? Yes. Okay. So um, Odyssey is small. Uh, each winter we offer three online classes and each summer we offer our in-person workshop and then we have some other things that run all year round but those are our basic um, programs that that um, that we offer to help writers so uh, December 7th is our application deadline if you'd like to apply to any of the three online classes we offer um, they are held live online via Zoom. So, and we've been doing this since 2010, uh, live online classes. So we're pretty good at it now. Um, so that way you can interact, you can ask questions, you can participate. It's a very uh, dynamic, engaging uh, classroom uh, experience. Um, and then uh, you have us homework assignments to do. You do critiques of uh, your classmates' homework assignments. They do critiques of yours. The instructor critiques everybody, and you get really thorough, in-depth feedback from our incredible instructors. Um, it's not going to be like a couple sentences. It's going to be like a lot of feedback to really make you think, how are you um, implementing the techniques that are being covered in the class? How can you do so better? How can you make your scenes stronger or your world building stronger? Um, each class is limited to 14 students because it is a huge amount of work for the instructor to provide this kind of feedback. Um, and in, we have uh, class meetings every two weeks uh, that last between an hour and a half and two hours, depending on the class you take. And then in between, you are participating in a um, an internet site where you will post your homework and your critiques, have discussions on different topics, um, and you'll also get a meeting with the instructor, a private meeting, to discuss any, any questions or problems you have. Um, so we've got the three classes. One is on scene structure, uh, one is on character emotions, and one is on world building. And they all last for about a month. World building seems to me uh, the the one that potentially could present the biggest challenge to some writers because depending on what kind of world you're in, I mean it's it's fairly easy if you're going to set a story in Chicago, you go to Chicago and you you know you take pictures and you do your research, you go to the Chamber of Commerce and the Tourism Board and whatnot. But if you're setting uh, if you're setting a a story on Pern, for example, or if you're creating uh, Ragamashman in in the in the in the SETI three galaxy, I mean, the world building for speculative fiction sometimes presents its own challenges. Do you have the the most common problems? What are some of the most common problems that your students come across? when they're doing that world building because 
I would think there's there's a couple of different pitfalls right from the start. Either you don't get detailed enough in your world building, or you get too deep in the weeds and it bogs your storytelling down. Now you could be, you know, not everybody is a Tolkien where you could spend, you know, 12 chapters on trees, but is that is that a is that a common challenge among students especially when they're starting out? Absolutely. Some writers just love world building and they will show me their three ring notebooks filled with notes about their world. They'll show me their gorgeous map that they either drew or paid somebody to draw of their world. Um, They will go through all sorts of research rabbit holes to explore areas of the world. Um, And to those writers, my message is the world needs to serve the story. Your goal is to write a compelling, involving story. The story has to be set somewhere. And, you know, a cool world is great. And a world that helps to illustrate some of the, the themes and issues that you're trying to explore is very important. But the purpose is not to create a world. Uh, the purpose is to write a good story and the story uh, needs to be the primary uh, focus. And so you're creating a world that's going to help your story. And so I think thinking about it like that can, can maybe help to set the priorities better and give you a, a better sense of what you need to focus on. Um, there are the other writers, as you say, who don't particularly care for world building. They want to write a story, um, you know, say a fantasy in a medieval setting. So they're just going to pull a generic setting, a generic medieval fantasy world, God forbid, in the fantasy tavern um, and <laughs> put it there. Uh, and so it's going to feel very unoriginal. And again, the setting is not going to serve the story because they don't really go together. You've just pulled one off of this shelf and you've got the other one from somewhere else. Uh, They're not really working together. So you want to figure out really what the goal of your story is, what kind of world is going to best help you to show that story. Are there times where it's better to create your own world. Let's say you've got a story. You've got this idea for a story. And it could lend itself to be a tie-in fiction story, for example. Where, you know, I've got this really great idea for a Star Trek novel, let's say. Do you find that there are uh, be- best moments, best times, worst times when doing your own world building is probably the better option as opposed to playing in somebody else's sandbox and having to deal with the constraints of that world building that's already happened? Are there, are there times where it's best to do one or the other? Well, I think it depends on your inspiration and your goal for the story. Um, Stories set in pre-existing universes can be great. Um, I've certainly written fan fiction, and I've also written some Babylon 5 novels, um, and I loved doing that. And uh, 
actually, uh, because, you know, settings are often not fully realized on television, there can be a lot to explore and expand uh, in, a, in a novel uh, set in a known universe. Um, and there can also be planets and locations that haven't been visited before that you have to build. Uh, and there can be a lot of creativity. So many artists ha have said variations on the idea that limitations um, encourage creativity. Right. The more you're boxed in, the more you're kind of forced to be creative to get out of the box. And working in a pre-existing universe kind of boxes you in. And so sometimes, uh, at least when I was writing the Babylon 5 novels that I did, I felt like it was very frustrating because I like, oh, here's a brilliant idea. Oh, it won't work because this has been established and I can't do it. Oh, another brilliant. No, that right. won't work. And so it took like allegedly five brilliant ideas, but probably maybe maybe if I'm lucky, only the last one was brilliant to actually come up with something that would work. But it forced me to think out of the box and not go for the standard ways of solving a problem. So um, I enjoyed that very much and I felt it was valuable and creative. Um, but on the other hand, writing in a pre-existing universe with characters that already exist um, means you don't have to develop some of the skills that you need to develop your own original fiction. So I would certainly encourage anyone who has been writing in the fan fiction space or pre-existing worlds to think about uh, exploring their own worlds and finding their own voice and what they have to say and what, what worlds they want to write about and what characters they want to write about to build those skills. Um, because uh, you're, you're relying in some cases on you know, people's memory uh, and knowledge of material, uh, which makes it, uh, which allows you to not have to introduce all of that stuff, which can be one of the big challenges of writing in, in fantasy or science fiction. It seems to me that tie-in fiction has gained a certain amount of respectability over the last half dozen, you know, six, ten years. You've got the, uh, they have their own award now. Uh, a lot of a lot of fairly well-known established authors have gotten into tie-in fiction as you know in addition to their own work and and such is is tie-in fiction no longer the red-headed stepchild of of authoring um uh, i think it's still the red-headed stepchild <laughs> um yeah, I mean, it's nice that people are noticing it. It's nice that more people are talking about writing it uh, instead of just kind of hiding the fact that they write it. Um, I got a lot of great pleasure out of writing uh, the, the fan fiction and um, tie-in novels that I did. Um, so that's very nice. But, you know, it's human nature to always want somebody to look down on. Uh, and so writers of original fiction will look down on writers of tie-in fiction and uh, writers of tie-in fiction will look down on romance writers and romance writers will look down on, I don't know what, um, I'm sure they have people that they look down on, but that it seems to be human nature. I don't know why 
well, I do know why, but it would be nice if we could just all appreciate each other for the many different things that we write and and just enjoy them all and and feel that they all have value. I think the romance writers are having a, a, a hard enough time eating their own right now with, with the implosion of what's been going on over there with the Romance Writers Association, Romance Writers of America, their, their organization kind of imploding, uh, as it were, over the last six months or so. Uh, but then you have uh, the other thing in, ter- in terms of respectability of the authors, uh, we've learned now that Alan Dean Foster has an issue with Disney Publishing not paying him his royalties. And now it's coming out, uh, some of these different things, you know, where authors are sitting there going, yeah, me too, I'm having the same issue. Uh, Charlie Lippincott's widow saying that uh, he had had some issues with residuals not being paid, going as far back as Lucasfilm being its own thing. It, how much... And I don't know how many how many conversations you've had about this since since it's come out, but does this seem like an outlier situation? Or is there is there a problem with tie-in writers getting paid their their royalties? Well, I would say in the past it would be a rare situation where a tie-in writer would get any royalties, like by contract, would, would not be due any royalties um, in the past, that you would just pay them a flat fee and be done with it. Um, so the fact that the contract is even saying that they are supposed to get royalties is a step forward. Now maybe we need to actually pay them the royalties that they are deserving. Um, so. I mean, I've been hearing problems with writers and royalties since I've been in the business. So, you know, uh, 35 years, uh, a long time. Uh, I I don't think that's anything new uh, for it to be uh, such a high profile author at such a high profile company is a little bit unusual. Uh, I was surprised to hear that. but it seems to be, for some reason, and I don't really understand why, even having worked in publishing, why there is some problems sometimes with people being paid appropriately. I mean, when the publishing houses were small and they were, you know, on the verge of going under all the time, uh, maybe, you know, that would be more understandable. Uh, but now they're huge conglomerates and uh, <laughs> of a very of a shrinking number by the moment. And one would think that their procedures would be well established and wouldn't allow for this sort of thing. But perhaps that's just me being naive. Are these publishing house consolidations eventually going to do harm to the marketplace, do you think? Because your your options now are... I mean, now, you know, Simon & Schuster is the latest one that's going into the, uh, I think, uh, Random House or something uh, has has done some stuff. AT&T is is divesting itself of these things. And we've got essentially six companies that own everything at this point. And in the publishing world, you have all of these different publishing imprints now owned by the same company. The company, it would seem the company philosophy would trickle down into the various different imprints, the different genres, and then you run into this same problem that you run into with 
oh, you know, we don't want that one because of that reason and this reason or that. So breaking in to traditional publishing would seem to me a little bit more of a challenge. Your other options are self-publishing or crowdfunding. Are, do you have do you have students that are coming through that are looking at those options as well? Because those those are a little bit limited in terms of the resources you have available. When you go with traditional publishing, you've got an edit, you've got a story editor, you've got a copy editor, you've got all of this support system in place, this structure for the process. Whereas if you're self publishing, you're doing it all by yourself, and if you get an editor. You're paying for that. Uh, if you get uh, a typesetter or you get somebody who do, does the layout, somebody who does the cover art and all that, you're having to source all of that yourself. And yes, it gives you a little bit more control over everything, but it, there's that expense. And of course, the mar- like we've talked about before, the marketing side of things, no matter which way you go, you're having to do uh, you know, the lion's share of getting the word out about your book. Is it easier to do that when you've got a traditional publisher sitting behind you, or does that even matter anymore? Uh, well, uh, I think that having a traditional publisher can certainly help with a lot of things, as you were pointing out, the whole editing, typesetting, proofreading, cover promotion distribution into bookstores into online venues um, publicity Uh, publishers don't generally don't do a lot uh, for writers for publicity of their books they do a very basic amount of work Uh, and so whether you have a traditional publisher or yourself published you need to do a lot of promotion for your own work Um, But it's certainly good to have them as uh, the basic level and a backstop and providing you with all of these services. I mean, the the advice in the old days used to be don't ever um, put your own money into your work. Have people pay you for your work. People should pay you for your writing. Um, And so that's what a traditional publisher will do unless they're very small, in which case they offer no advance, but uh, the big ones certainly would offer you something in advance. Uh, Whereas self-publishing, you are putting your own money into it. Uh, That said, um, I know a a number of writers, uh, students who have gone through Odyssey's programs who self-publish, who do Kickstarter to crowdfund their work, um, who promote their work Uh, very effectively online people who have self-published bestsellers, uh, which is great. And I I, uh, respect so much their skills and their ability to get their work out there. And they uh, they come to it very professionally. They, you know, hire an editor, they hire a proofreader, they hire somebody to do the cover, they make everything very top of the line uh, and put a lot of time and effort into it. So a lot of it is, yeah, how much money do you have to put into it? How much time and effort do you have to put into it? How much skill do you have at marketing and publicizing your work? Because you must have those skills. If you just 
self-publish your work and throw it up there, it's one of millions of self-published books. It's not going to get any attention unless you're already famous. If you're already Stephen King, then you don't really have to worry about the promotion. Um, but if you're not, if this is like your first novel, you know, a handful of friends and family will probably buy it and that's it. Uh, so you need to make that commitment if you're going to go that route and you got to have a lot of time to do that time that you will not be spending writing. Right. And in my mind, every writer should be spending more time writing. And so if you can offshore those tasks to other people like a traditional publisher, then that's all to the good because then you can be writing the next book and you can be improving your skills and making it better. There is a lot of chatter uh, in the comic space about the, the crowdfunding and uh, a number of the creators over there talk about building your audience because, like you say, if you're going to be doing all of this yourself, you have to raise awareness. You've got to be out there in front of people and you have to do stuff. Is there an advantage... Uh, I don't know if this has come up in conversation in any of the classes. Is there an advantage to authors having uh, video channels, YouTube, BitChute? Uh, you know, we've talked about the social media stuff, but are there advantages to using uh, a video platform in order to connect with potential audience? I mean, should an author sit there and say, "Oh, hey, here's my YouTube channel. Go see," you know, and have writing tips or cover reveals or, or anything like that. Is that, is that something? Cause that takes, like you say, it's a time investment and there are some people that do better on camera than others. <laughs> there, I mean, red light syndrome is very much still a real thing. So it, it, is there, is there advice that you would give to authors about how to conduct themselves because you know you've got to do these interviews you're doing a lot of zoom calls you're doing a lot of stuff online uh, are there are there hints and tips for uh, a, a, an on-camera presence for authors um i'm sure there are that's not something i've gone into a lot i mainly offer uh tips for instructors that we have like teaching our online classes because if you're going to do a live online class you want it to be engaging and I remember when we first started doing these in 2010 um, some of the instructors would you know we would mute the students except when they have a question and then unmute because otherwise you get a lot of garbled home noises uh, from different people in the feed um, and so uh, some of the instructors would have a real hard time lecturing into the quiet that they would start getting very quiet right? Uh, because they would hear no response. Like you say something that's sort of a joke and you don't hear any laughter. And so then you're like, oh, my God, they hate me. What am I doing? <laughs> and so uh, some some instructors would have a hard time with that. So I would I made up, you know, some tips for them on how to do that sort of thing. Uh, I think in general, as to your wider question about is it worthwhile for writers to like create a YouTube channel to promote their work, uh, I think for the most part, no, until you're well known. I mean, like Brandon Sanderson has a great YouTube channel where he offers advice to writers and things, um, which is very valuable. 
but he's already well known. Um, for people who are starting out as writers, I think it's much more effective to get your work in front of book bloggers, get them to review it, to do interviews on other people's YouTube channels where you can uh, be known to readers. You want to be reaching readers. And one of the great one of the things that I think is a mistake for most developing writers is that they try to put content online, whether it be on YouTube or in their blog or whatever, which is advice to writers. Your goal is not to reach writers. Writers usually don't have a lot of money. And they're not looking to buy a lot of books. Right. Um, so you're looking to reach readers. And so you want to give content that would be of interest to readers. And so that's why I say try to think about interests that your readers would have uh, people who might want to read your book would also be interested in these other things so if you're uh, a science fiction writer then maybe you post about technology and new discoveries and experiments and things that maybe tie to technology in your book or just are interesting um, or if you're a fantasy writer maybe you post about different kinds of swords and sword fighting and outfits of the Middle Ages or whatever, things that would interest your readers. Uh, and so I think that's um, a way to to think about how to approach your readers. Um, some good advice that I remember reading once was to uh, online to think about interesting parts of yourself, interesting things that you know, and to share those things. Um, things that might be of interest to your readers. Such as how your cat walks across your face and well, in the middle of the night. <laughs> now, somehow the cat always gets into the into the situation. Right. Now, it, it, there are a lot of people that go through, we just, we just had November, the National Novel Writing Month and, and all that. Uh, people have the goal, you know, we've, let's do 50,000 words in a month. Do you have uh, you have any experience with that? Have you run across and had conversations with people about how well that goes in in general terms? Is that a, is that a good idea? Is that a, a way of giving people structure? And because there's a lot of people, yes, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to write the next great American novel, and they stare at that that blank page, that blank screen, and they go, "Okay, now what?" And and it would seem like programs like that sort of give a little bit of structure to the effort, but it doesn't necessarily help guide the effort, if, if you know what I mean. Because you're still not learning a skill set there. It's just, okay, it's, it's time management more than anything else. It's really all in how you approach it and in what kind of writer you are. Everybody writes differently. That's something I have learned working with writers as a, a senior editor at Bantam Doubleday Dell and working with writers at Odyssey as a, a teacher and a mentor. Um, every writer works differently. And so you have to find what works for you. For some people, NaNoWriMo is this great um, punch in the arm of, you know, a little push along the way helps to focus them, helps them to get words on the page. Uh, for other people, it's very frustrating. They write so far and they get stuck or they get the 50,000 words and then they don't know what to do with it or they think it's a mess and they, 
they don't want to go back and, and work on it. Because, I mean, if you're writing so fast, probably what you're writing is, you know, 90% mess and maybe 10% salvageable good stuff. Right. And so you have to go into it with being willing to, okay, at the end, I'm going to find the 10% good stuff and then I'm going to make a novel out of it. Um, but if you go into it with, well, I want to have a finished novel by the end of the month, chances are that's not going to happen for you. Um, so uh, if you're able to approach it in a way that works for you, and I say, you know, adapt the goals to what you want to achieve uh, and that will work for you so that you can feel good about it, because it's never good to set a goal that's unattainable and then fail and then feel like, oh, I'll just give up. Right. You want to set a goal that is reasonable that you can achieve on most days and then um, feel good about it and keep going uh, and then be willing to you know rethink and revise as with all writing um, most of us are not going to be able to produce genius the first time around writing is all about revising and one of the great things about writing uh, unlike, say, doing a video on YouTube that's live, <laughs> is that you can go back over it and over it and make it perfect or as close to perfect as you can. You can make it better and better. And people don't have to see all the horrible versions that you wrote before <laughs> the, the final one. All they see is the final one. And they go, gosh, I, that seems like it was super easy for her to write. Well, it seems like you've had a super easy time here. Nothing that we have to go back and, and correct and, and polish or redo or anything like that. You've done just fine. So uh, the the uh, website, odysseyworkshop.org. Gene Cavellos, thank you very much for being here today. I know you've got another appointment that you've got to get to, so we will let you skip on uh, that. And the uh, the website also has, let me find it, a Twitter, uh, Twitter account, Odyssey Workshop, is where you can find more information. The online class deadline is December the 7th. The course starts on January 4th. And I imagine when you get to the summer program, you're making adjustments because of all of the different things going on with the quarantines and lockdowns and whatnot. So is that still going to be an in-person workshop uh, you're hoping? Uh, yes, hoping is the operative word. Yeah. Um, I've got three plans going, option A, B, and C. So right now we're hoping for option A, which is in person, hopefully everybody vaccinated, everything back to normal, just like a usual summer would be. Um, but if that doesn't quite work out, we've got option B and option C. Uh, option B would involve, you know, social distancing and masks, and we're still in New Hampshire in person, but uh, things will be a lot safer and more distant. Uh, and option C is everybody will be in their own homes participating remotely, which is what we did last summer. And it ended up working out great. Um, the students really stepped up and despite, you know, having to operate out of their own homes and having those distractions around, uh, they, they worked harder than ever. And it was a wonderful experience. So um, I feel no matter what, what option we have to go with it's gonna it's gonna work out we're gonna be able to offer a terrific experience all right well good luck with that we may have you on again to talk about it as we get closer to the summer session gene cavellos from the odyssey writing workshop thanks for being here today 
Thanks, Jason. All right. And thank you all for being here as well and uh, and joining us. If you've got comments or questions or, or suggestions for guests, you can send us an email live from the bunker at sci-fi for me.com. You can leave a comment. The link to the workshop is in our show notes, so you can see it there and go find out more information. And that is uh, one more show in the can. We will be back tomorrow with more here live from the bunker on Sci-Fi for Me. Thanks for being here. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi for Me Radio. Copyright 2020 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.